As one of them, as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to, there's going to be a new world order out there. And we've got to lead it. And we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here in a conversation that is being recorded on the 28th of March, 2022. And I have back on the line with us today a a previous Corbett Report guest who hopefully you'll be familiar with by now. That's Ian Davis of in-this-together.com, which, of course, will be linked up in the show notes so that you can check out not only his work in general, but in particular, a very important and typically voluminous and voluminously detailed report that he penned last month on technocracy, the operating system for the new international rules-based order. I will underline and stress that again. I think you should read this article. Yes, you'll have to set aside a chunk of your time to do so, but I think it will definitely be worth it because there's a lot of important details in here. And you'll excuse me for reading a lengthy introduction before we bring our guest on today, but I think it's important to set the groundwork and the 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 sort of the establish the table, as it were, for the conversation. So I'm going to read from the introduction to this article in which Ian Davis writes... In this article, we will explore the true nature of the international rules-based order and examine the forces that shape it. We will consider if the narratives we are commonly fed stack up. It is widely accepted that the IRBO is undergoing disruptive change. That transformation is often reported as an eastward shift in the balance of power between nation-states. It is said that this new emerging international order will be founded upon a global multipolar system of sovereign states and international law. This new system allegedly stands in opposition to the fading Western rules-based model. This time, rather than relying upon Western imperialism, the new international law-based system will emphasize multipolar cooperation, trade, and respect for national sovereignty. It will instead be led by a Eurasian economic and technological power bloc. The apparent ongoing antagonism of geopolitics looks likely to maintain the East-West divide we are familiar with. However, What is now being framed as the multipolar order is, in reality, the multi-stakeholder order. As we shall discover, nation-states are not the driving force behind the current restructuring of global governance. The geopolitical narratives we are given are frequently superficial. Those leading the transformation have no allegiance to any nation-state, only to their own globalist network and collective aspirations. In their hands, international law is no more of an impediment to their ambitions than a vague commitment to rules. National governments are partners within this network formed of both state and non-state actors. Despite professed animosities, they have collaborated for decades to fashion the global governance complex that is now emerging. No matter who is said to lead it, the IRBO is set to continue in a new form. As the post-World War II system recedes, the framework being imposed to take its place is completely alien to the people who live in the former Western liberal democracies. Thus, we too must be transformed if we are to accept the realignment. We are being conditioned to believe in the promise of the new IRBO and the global technocracy it is built upon. 
That is the introduction to the article. Once again, uh, the link to the article itself will be in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you go and read it. But let's bring Ian Davis on to talk about this in more detail. Ian, thank you for joining us on the program again today. Oh, it's my pleasure, James. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. Well, uh, I've just read the introduction to your article, so let's move on and talk about this international rule-based order, rules-based order, the IRBO that you identify in this article. What is the IRBO and how is it coming together? Uh, well, the international rules-based, well, first of all, it's difficult to pin down what it exactly is because it's been called so many different things at so many different times, you know, by different people. Um international rules-based system, uh, the new rules-based order, all these all these different terms get flung around by politicians at different times. But essentially what it is, is a set of, the idea is that it is a set of rules and regulations combined with aspects of international law, which set the framework, supposedly, for international relations. That international order, which is often highlighted by Western leaders, um, particularly at the moment, uh, the US and the UK and, you know, the Germans and the French as well, often talk about it as um, in a morally virtuous, with a morally virtuous interpretation, as is it's based on democratic principles um, that it advances democracy and that, you know, as we're currently seeing in the Ukraine at the moment, almost, you know, uh, it kind of re- recalling uh, Article 5 of the, of the NATO uh, Charter, that uh, an attack on a democracy is an attack on all democracies, which is, sounds spookily similar. Um the idea is that the international rules-based order has uh, a, a moral imperative, which is which stands in opposition to something that uh, you you've discussed before. Um, the joint statement between Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin, who who suggested a different model um, based on um, what they were calling a multipolar. Uh, uh, rules rules based system, but they very much focused on it being an international law based system, focused more uh, around the G20 than the international rules based order, which is the one that we're that we're uh, uh, encouraged to support, uh, which is based around the G7 and what we might call a unipolar world order. And it was actually uh, Patrick Stewart who was writing for um, in the Washington Quarterly for um, the Council on Foreign, well, not for the Council on Foreign Relations in this this instance, but he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, who described the what the international rules based order is currently the the Western model. I, I should interject that you mean Stuart Patrick, not Patrick Stewart. No, yeah, not Patrick, Captain Picard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, not not Captain uh, Picard. No, uh, but um, he he described it as follows: What sets the post nineteen forty five Western order apart is that it was shaped overwhelmingly by a single power, the United States, operating in the broader context of strategic bipolarity. It constructed, managed, and defended the regimes of the capitalist world economy. So this idea 
you know, which is framed in fluffy rhetoric of democracy and all that kind of thing. Um, and, I, and it is fluffy rhetoric. I think that's the point to make, because there is if we look at what's happening now, there is no commitment to democratic principles. There, none, none at all. So. The, the idea is that the, the US as a as a unipolar power, which certainly they were after the um, end and the sort of dissolution of the Soviet Union, they became that in reality. They became a un. We had a unipolar world. There was only one superpower. That situation is rapidly changing, and that and that and that situation is changing very quickly given what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. But none, but nonetheless, that was the idea of the international rules-based order as presented by the West, which stands opposed to the new model, which is being advocated by China and Russia at the moment. Now, it is important to to highlight that, in fact, this was very recently referenced in a statement that went at least somewhat viral by Biden recently, talking about the creation of the new world order and how the U.S. would have to be at the front of it. He was referencing the secret military briefing that he was given the other day, where they were talking about the 60 million people that died in the first half of the 20th century in the cre- before the creation of the liberal world order, was what he called it, um, which, uh, of course, we can read as Pax Americana, the rise of the unipolar American empire, which has been the ordering force of the IRBO for the past 75 years. As you say, that is now being opposed by the upstarts of Russia and China and the G20 and the BRICS who are going to form a multipolar international rules-based order, just a different flavor of IRBO. Um, let's, Let's talk about that, examine that, and examine the proposal that they are making for an alternative to this system. Yeah, so um, in their joint statement, um, you know, sort of taking taking elements out of that, they said today the, this is this is uh, Xi Jinping and and Vladimir Putin issued this joint statement, which was interestingly on the fourth of February, so about three weeks before um, the uh, the official start of the military operation in Ukraine, and they said, "quote Today the world is going through momentous changes." And humanity is entering a new era of rapid development and profound, profound transformation. It sees the development of such processes and phenomena as multipolarity, economic globalization, the advent of an information society, cultural diversity, transformation of the global governance architecture and the world order. So they were very conscious of something that has been discussed for a long time, and also, you know, by leading think tanks of what you might call the IRBO, if we, we stick with that nomenclature, um, that um, of the idea that that power base is shifting. The Council on Foreign Relations, the World Economic Forum, uh, all these kind of organisations have long talked about this shift in power eastwards. So it's not as if Putin and Xi Jinping were saying anything particularly uh, counter to the to the prevailing narrative. They, that that is that has been the argument for a long time. We've seen people like George Soros and and people like that openly talk about, in his case, the demise of the dollar and the rise of China in particular as as the the centre of a new kind of economic power block, a Eurasian power block. So 
what that what Putin and uh, Xi Jinping were announcing it was not new. It was it was something that's been going on for quite some time. But what they are proposing, this is the the different flavour, is is a, a model that is centred more around the UN. Now the IRBO is supposedly centred around the UN and international law. But international law, I mean, there, if, unless law is applied equally and fairly, there's a, there's a concept in law which says that it's no law at all. Law, only law that applies equally and fairly to, in this case, in international law, all nation states can be considered to be, in effect, a law. International law is not that. So I, I would argue that international law is not law at all. It's just a set of rules which nation states in the unipolar model can apply whenever they choose, more as a kind of weapon to... to so at the moment, undoubtedly, uh, Russia's uh, military action in Ukraine is technically illegal under international law. However, so was the bombing of Bosnia, uh, the destruction of Yugoslavia, the illegal war in Iraq. They were illegal as well. But the US unipolar world order wasn't sanctioned for any of those actions. So Xi Jinping and and Putin were suggesting that international law should be applied. But of course, what they mean by that is not that it should actually be applied fairly and equally um, and that all nation states should should that international law should actually function as a law. What they mean is that they want to rebalance the unfairness of that system in their favour. <laughs> you know, it's it's not it's not uh, like they've got a commitment. If we look if we look at the way that, for example, Russia have treated people that have protested against the war in Russia, Russia isn't isn't some kind of example of which has been suggested by some as 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 some sort of progressive um, new liberal fair and equal society. Russia is equally committed to what we were we were going to talk about technocracy, if not more so, than Western nation states. So this is not a game of right and wrong or you know who's gonna who's gonna be a fair player on the international stage. This is a power struggle within a system that is undoubtedly the same on both sides of the divide, east and west. The, the way I liken it is to a debate not about the existence of the table of power, but the shape of that table and who gets to sit at what part of the table. We want a table that's, that looks like this, and we want a seat here at the table of power, but we don't want to destroy the table. So reading from that joint statement that you're alluding to, for example, in this Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin pledge to, quote, strengthen cooperation within multilateral mechanisms including the United Nations, and encourage the international community to prioritize development issues in the global macro policy coordination. For example, the Russian side confirms its readiness to continue working on the China-proposed Global Development Initiative, including participation in the activities of the Group of Friends of the Global Development Initiative under the UN auspices. In order to accelerate the implementation of the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, the sides call on the international community to take practical steps in key areas of cooperation, such as poverty reduction, food security, vaccines, and epidemic control, 
financing for development, climate change, sustainable development, including green development, industrialization, digital economy, and infrastructure connectivity. Now, so stepping back, as as we're talking about here, these are two sides that are competing for the shape of the table or what, what part of the table they're going to sit at. But it looks to me like the table that's being used or constructed here, <laughs> whatever metaphor we're using, looks pretty much the same in both visions. We are talking about a UN 2030 agenda for sustainable development driven agenda for vaccines and epidemic control, digitization of the economy and digital infrastructure and uh, sustainable development and all of the things that we know are, of course, key parts of a much deeper agenda that unites both sides of this phony dialectic, technocracy. And of course, that uh, we're not spoiling anything. That is part of the title of this article, but let's break it down for people. What does this mean? Technocracy is the operating system of this IRBO. Yeah, so if you're going to uh, manage a global a system of global governance, there needs to be some mechanism by which you're going to control the population. And quite clearly, the mechanism that they're going to use is technocracy. So technocracy, as I'm sure your viewers will be, and as a viewer of yours, I'm very familiar with, um, you know, is a system of control of everything right down to the a centralized system of control of everything right down to the individual level based upon the management and allocation of resources but in order in order to be able to do that you need to have everything that goes with it the surveillance state the biosecurity state digital ids the internet of you know the fourth industrial revolution enables technocracy because when technocracy was first devised in the 1930s by, you know, Scott and Hubbard, um, that it was it was a silly, well, not a silly idea, but technologically it was preposterous. But people like Bozinski and the Rockefellers and people like that understood from the beginning that although this system now, as presented, can't function, technology will enable it to function and eventually it will function and that's why i suggest in the article the trilateral commission who as early as 1973 were talking about the demise of the dollar and the demise basically of of, of the us-led hegemony model which we're talking about now in the context of the irbo had already identified that China would eventually rise to rise to prominence globally. Now, the, the debate is whether or not they then set about, I would suggest that they did, they then set, a, set about making that a reality. Now, if, if we look at what the Trilateral Commission was suggesting about development in China, it is undoubtedly that following that the that inward investment to china that transfer of technology to china the the enab enabling and constructing what is undoubtedly today in it's not a complete technate there are parts of china where where you know it's not under a kind of techno technocratic rule because China is a, a, a country, it's a country of countries within countries. Many of the provinces of China are quite autonomous and have got different ideas than the Central Committee and so forth. 
But nonetheless, it is practically the world's first technate. Certainly, certainly in the cities, in the in the big urban areas, it has become a model of the world's first technate. And the technate is what the the, the technocracy Inc. called uh, a, a nation that is run as a technocracy. So. In order to enable people to be managed at the individual level, you need to have this apparatus, this technological apparatus, which will enable their decisions to be controlled from a, a central committee of technocrats who will be able to oversee the entire system. Now, obviously, as a, a group or a body or a, or a uh, it can't do that you know, manually. That needs to be done by some mechanism such as AI. So AI algorithms will enable this 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 individual monitoring of every person within, you know, citizen of the technate or whatever you want to call them. And that is where we are heading. That is what the the pseudo pandemic, as I call it, was about. It was about setting this this system in the rollout of this system. It was about starting the rollout of this system. So we're, that's what we're seeing in, in terms of vaccine passports, digital identity and so forth. Now, it's about introducing us to those ideas. Those ideas have now been introduced globally. So now, now we are all on that path heading towards technocracy. And, but, but neither China and Russia stand opposed to that. They're not opposed to technocracy. It's they're 100 percent on board with it. In fact, one of the one of the managing mechanisms, because one another aspect of technocracy, a key aspect of technocracy as it's modeled today is the corporate management of of, you know, how, how it's going to work with corporations at the moment. You know, so part of technocracy is about controlling us as individuals, but a big part of it is about controlling business and controlling the flow of capital. And because if you can control the flow of capital, as we've seen in the 20th century, you can control the activity of business. In China, they've got the corporate social credit system, which is the same as the social credit system for individuals, i.e. their behaviour is controlled to a certain extent by reward, a system of rewards and punishments. The same is true for the corporate social credit system. So business activity has the same thing. Now, when at COP26, uh, which was the, the last um, uh, discussion in Glasgow about sustainable development, one of the guys that, that didn't get much coverage was the, the head of the international uh, IFRS. Um, I forgot the, the, the name of that, but the um, Erky Lickinen was the guy's name. And he came on after uh, uh, Mark Carney. And he introduced something called the International Sustainability Standards Board, which created this accountancy system that would enable, in effect, a, a Chinese style corporate social credit system for business globally. Now, to, to illustrate how much China, are, in, in this case, China, are not opposed to this technocracy, the first thing that the Chinese did was offer to host the ISSB. They, they, that was their response to it. So now we see this alignment between Russia and China 
And, it, and if we consider their stance on technocracy, both Russia and China are equally, if not more so, committed to that system. So if we look at this as competing hypotheses um, to explain what is happening in the world, we have the hypothesis that China and Russia and the G20 and the BRICS are some sort of authentic, true opposition to the standard liberal world order or whatever they're calling it this week on the Western side of things. Or we have the hypothesis that essentially both of these competing systems are really both lusting after the same technocratic end in the erection of technates rather than nation states. I suppose we could test that hypothesis by looking at the actual observable facts on the ground and seeing if how they line up with those hypotheses. So for example, the, the pseudo pandemic, which we've talked about before, we've talked about your work uh, on that. So I'll link that up for people who haven't seen that conversation. But the pseudo pandemic seems to be a good test case, doesn't it? And it seems rather inexplicable to me from the standpoint of those who are arguing that there is an authentic opposition to the fundamental nature of this world order going on at, on the BRIC side by the fact that it was China, in fact, leading the way for the world in its vaccine and pandemic control with its quarantines and its QR codes, um, controlling people's ability to so much as leave their own neighborhood based on whether or not they, your app is telling you you've got a green pass or a red pass. We saw all of that taking place first in China. And that was something that, as I pointed out in my recent episode on this, in episode 416, uh, Putin specifically commended Xi Jinping for his response in the COVID uh, pseudo-pandemic. And he specifically said, you led the way and showed us, you know, what to do, yay. And of course, Russia also is pumping and pimping its own vaccines, which of course are being developed in conjunction with Oxford AstraZeneca and are being funded by the RDIF, which is run by World Economic Forum member, etc., etc. All of these same linkages are in there. And so it seems to me that if we're looking at testing these hypotheses against reality, it seems to me that the idea that we're dealing with essentially technocracy as the gluing, guiding, gluing force of both of these uh, supposedly opposed systems seems to me to better explain the facts. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, for example, I mean, at the moment, we're seeing China have just locked down 50 million people again. So so China are using the same, exactly the same, and the, well, as you quite rightly said, the, the, the idea of lockdowns originated in China. And I think that that's the, the point of talking about technocracy. Technocracy has been first developed to its fullest potential or uh, the fullest extent that it has been developed thus far in China. So this, this is a model that has been supported by Western investment and Western development. Western, and that, this is the thing that I think is, is, is key, is that that technological advancement in China that's enabled technocracy wouldn't have been able to proceed as quickly as it has without Western financial support and technological assistance. So it's not as if, you know, that no nobody in the West, no no political leader in the West can pretend that they are surprised by what the, the development in China, because the West has enabled it. So you could look at that from an economic perspective and say, well, that makes sense because they just want to develop a market. Fair enough that, you know, there is that aspect to it. But they've also enabled the rise of a competing superpower. Knowingly and wittingly 
enable that rise. So, so the idea that the, um, sorry, what was your question going back to the? Well, I was looking at how we can square the observable reality with these competing hypotheses and which one seems to explain it better. As you're pointing out, the idea that, in fact, there is a technocratic ideal that is being, I think, sought after by all of the competing Sometimes I think genuinely competing, but competing for, the, as I say, the shape of the table rather than the table itself, which is that technocratic order. And I think you're pointing out the, exactly that, that seeming paradox and perplexity. Why would China have been, as you say, deliberately engineered and placed in its position of a rising economic and thus geopolitical and thus military power over the past three decades if this was some sort of genuine threat to this Western world order or something along those lines, is it because it is exactly as David Rockefeller penned in his Ode to Mao in the New York Times in the 1970s that China represents, that the Chinese experiment is one of the greatest social experiments of all time. I'm misquoting that, but I will link the actual quote so you can go and read it uh, word for word for yourself. I, 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 as people know, I tend to believe it's it that is the case. And I have made that point in many, many different episodes and articles before, like China and the New World Order. But I think what you are saying here is in accord with that that hypothesis. Yeah, and, and China lends itself well to being the first place to develop a technocracy, because technocracy at its, I suppose you could call it a neo-feudal system. So instead of, instead of you know, in traditional feudalism, people would be controlled by land. So people would be given a parcel of land uh, and and that land that you know they would have to live off that and then pay a tithe back to the feudal lords. Well, technocracy works by giving you access to energy. So the the the, 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 the way it's envisioned that it's going to work is by by well a feudal distribution of energy. So you will be controlled by how much energy you use. So. So, for example, the Internet of Things will enable all your energy usage to be monitored. So people will be allocated. And if, if, that, if we think about how that would work, if it was combined with something like central bank digital currency, then it's fair. I mean, it's not as if this technology itself is, is difficult to, to roll out. It's, all, it's already there. So if, if you combine that, that idea of monitoring our energy use with the Internet of Things. And if we also thought, think about the Internet of Bodies, where we are actually monitored as well, our en- us as, as, as human beings, our energy expenditure can also be monitored. So if, if, that, if you combine that with CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, that is, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how to stress this, that, that, is, that is utter slavery, there, there's no and something that people would would think of as as extreme feudalism. I mean, that that's what we're looking at. Absolutely China, right. I mean, I, I just want to underline this for people who haven't read the technocracy study course, which I did link up in my uh, Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary. I will cordreport.com slash big oil. You can get the uh, link to the actual technocracy study course itself written by Hubbard back in the 1930s where they laid out the system and what technocracy is and what it is aiming at. And as you point out, it is supposedly, at least what perhaps 
Hubbard and Scott and those early proponents truly believed in was that the technocrats, the engineers, the scientists will be able to perfectly balance energy consumption and production so that we can have a perfectly ordered economy and none of this boom and bust of capitalism, which was, of course, the overriding concern in the 1930s. Uh, for obvious reasons, a lot of ideas were being thrown out. This was one of them. But the key part of this was that uh, energy consumption and production, monitoring that, having that uh, calculated in real time through every single transaction going on in the economy. That was the underlying part of this. And on top of that, you wouldn't have money in this system. You would have energy credits denominated in joules or kilojoules or whatever they decide, and you will be allowed a certain amount of energy credits each month based on what the technocrats rule you are allowed to have. That is the basis for the system. And when you have it in that, that those details, in that perspective, you can see every piece of that, what the, the architecture for such a system being slotted into place. Of course, in the name of climate and sustainable development and all of the other good things for the earth. But it is about social credit scores, which can be tied into your stipend, your UBI, as they're calling it these days, that could take the form of an energy allowance in the form of the carbon credits, which have been uh, proposed before by UK parliament members and others have proposed that you have a carbon credit that you're allotted each month, you're allowed to spend this much carbon. And uh, how are they going to regulate this? Well, of course, they have to have tracking of everything in the economy at all times. And how are they going to regulate what you can and can't buy if you're using this cash? I mean, how are they going to stop that? No, if you're using a central bank digital currency, they can program it in. Uh-oh, you went over your carbon allowance. Uh, of course, that'll be tied into your digital ID. All of these things, which are propounded on both sides of this international rules-based order, all of them are fundamental to the operation of technocracy itself. So, unfortunately, since nine people out of ten don't even know what technocracy is, and the other one out of ten, probably you have one out of ten who's ever read the technocracy study course and knows what this is about and sees where it's going. So, we are in an uphill battle. But this is the Corbett Report, and as you know, we don't like to just simply point out the problems. I like to try to d direct and orient people towards the solutions. The question, I know it's overwhelming, how are you going to solve all the problems in the world, Ian? <laughs> but what do we as individuals do about this overwhelming task of trying to head on, uh, take head on this emerging technocracy? Well, I think the point is, if we, even for people like us that look at this kind of information a lot, it's easy to start imagining, and it is, it would be an imagination, that this, that there's this, mega powerful overarching system of total global control that that there's it's inevitable that we will be crushed under its forward advance it isn't inevitable it, it this is why they engage in so much propaganda propaganda is because they understand perfectly well that if we as individual citizens just turn around and say no i'm not doing it there's nothing they can do about it. If we do that in sufficient numbers, yes, it will be painful. And yes, there will be significant costs for that. And certainly the people that, that stick their heads above the parapet, the foot, there will be, you know, will, will probably be punished. You know, that, that, that will happen. But the alternative is to accept global slavery. So, so if in sufficient numbers we decide that we're not going for this centralized model of global central control 
but instead focus on decentralizing as much as we possibly can. So local decision making. I mean, I would suggest decentralizing right down to the individual level. But, you know, if if we don't, if we just focus on decentralized, I mean, taking the I mean, ironically, taking the current situation in Ukraine. What, what are we looking at in terms of the, the Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republic? They're, that's a decentralization of power from the Kiev government. And although that's I mean, I'm not I'm not making any any comment on that particularly. But nonetheless, if we start thinking about our political systems in that way, if we start decentralizing them, a big part of what they're going to offer is what they're calling civil society. So civil society will be sold to us as local decision making, people getting involved in local decision making. It, that is a total deception. What civil society will enable us to do is debate which how much of the policy we want. Do we want we, do we want bananas? Do we want yellow bananas or do we want green bananas? But whatever we whatever we debate, we're going to get bananas. So. That's a that's another deception. And the reason why they have to engage in that kind of stuff, civil society being perhaps a good example, is to convince us to accept all this. Hence, fake pandemics to convince us to accept all this. Hence, I would say war to convince us that all these changes are necessary. And why would they need to do that? If it was not for the fact that they realise that if we just say no, we're not going down this path, we are going to live our lives as autonomous, sovereign human beings, we'll make decisions for ourselves, we will decide where we spend our money, what we spend our money on, we won't accept central bank digital currency, if you impose it on us, we'll use our own monetary system. If we do that in sufficient numbers, they can't there's nothing they can do about it. And they know it because they're a tiny, tiny group of people that are seeking global hegemony against billions. And we just need to wake up and realize that that if we collectively stand up against this, there's not much they can do about it. Such powerful words. We have identified the enemy. They are the technocrats or the would-be technocrats. We've identified the ways that they are attacking us. So now we have to take our part of this on and start, as you say, decentralizing, taking the our power back into our own hands. Um, those are the true revolutionary words, and they don't look like the types of revolutions that are often set out as the templates for political action. Having said that, we have had the big 20,000-foot overview discussion of this subject, so I will once again direct people back to your article itself, where, as I say, you have voluminously detailed article with lots and lots and lots of links to specific pieces of information naming specific players and people and how they're connected to certain organizations and how those organizations fit into the picture that we're painting here. We cannot do justice to an article like that in a conversation like this, but we tried. <laughs> and for that, I appreciate you being here. Ian Davis of In This Together, I thank you very much for uh, your time today and for writing this article. Uh, thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot.